you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you're a guest with us, we are in the final 100 days moving toward our 100th anniversary as a congregation. And in the first of November, we're going to be celebrating uh, in a single service celebration on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And there's a lot of activities that have been taking place and, and they're beginning to, to pick up steam a little bit now in this last 100 days. But a part of that is 100 days of prayer. And most of you have one of these cards and I've been so encouraged to hear from families who are taking these and praying through them as a, as a family unit at, at dinner or maybe in family devotions, uh, single adults who in their devotional life, or working their way through these. And last week, uh, we prayed the first one together congregationally, and this morning, I'd like to lead us in a prayer for the second one. Uh, The prayer is, Father, we pray that we will grow in our holiness. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word, it clearly and unambiguously teaches us that you are holy. That you are light and in you is no darkness at all. And Father, you have called us to be holy because you are holy. You didn't just call us to be holy. You have given us your Holy Spirit. That we might mortify the deeds of the flesh. That you would help us and enable us and assist us to put to death the lust of the flesh, and the deeds of the body, that we could be holy in our actions. And so, Father, give us a congregational passion to be holy, not for ourselves, but for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About AD 390, the church wrote what has become known as the Apostles' Creed. Of course, it wasn't written by the apostles, but it was believed to be a beautiful summary of the apostolic message of the gospel, succinctly stated in a way that people could memorize it and think about it and read it. I want to read it to you because in the heart of this Apostles' Creed is the passage that we're going to to look at this morning. It goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell The third day he rose from the the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, in our church, a part of the membership process is affirming the, the Baptist faith and message 2000. At Southern Seminary, we have to affirm the Baptist faith and message, but we also sign 
the abstractive principles, which was a, uh, a, a succinct theological doctrine, document of certain doctrinal truths that we affirm as faculty members. And, and that's what the Apostles' Creed was, an affirmation of truth. And one of the early statements is found in the phrase, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that's where we find ourselves in the study of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is beginning to pick up speed. Mark is beginning to move along a little bit more quickly. Last week we studied how Jesus stood before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish Supreme Court. He was on trial for his life. They asked him, "Are are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And he said, I am. And Caiaphas, in response, tore his robe as a judicial act of condemnation and rejection. And Jesus was condemned of blasphemy and taken to Pontius Pilate. When this scene begins, it's it's shortly after 6 a.m. on Friday morning. Let me begin reading in verse 1 of Mark 15, and I'd like to read all the way through verse 20. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. I want you to notice how in each one of these scenes, and there are three scenes, Jesus messianic identity is at the core and center of each one. I want you to look with me first at King Jesus interrogated. King Jesus interrogated. 
chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Mark transitions for us from Caiaphas's residence to the praetorium where Pilate resided. He tells us it's early in the morning, sometime around 6. Now, in order to condemn a man of a capital offense, they could not convict him in the middle of the night. And so while they were circumventing many of their own laws, one thing they didn't want to do was to make sure that they crossed these T's and dotted these I's. And so they waited till daybreak. They've already condemned him of blasphemy and consider him worthy of death. So as the dawn breaks and the sun rises, the whole council convenes. And they make the final definitive, determinative decision that Jesus should be executed. And so they take him to Pilate. The crowds that had welcomed him at the beginning of the week are sound asleep. It's going to be the religious leaders and their family members and friends, the Sanhedrin, the council, and and all of them now gathering together and leading Jesus to the praetorium where Pilate resided when he was in, in Jerusalem. And you'll notice that they accuse him of many crimes. In fact, Luke delineates three specific crimes that they believe Jesus is guilty of. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, Luke wrote, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, the only one that really perks Pilate's interest is the third one, that Jesus might be a messianic pretender, that Jesus might be a a rebel or an insurrectionist trying to lead a revolt. And so that one is the one that perks his attention. That's the one that he focuses on. Uh, the other two accusations seem to, to drop to the side. And so Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Circle that word king. I mentioned to you that in, in each of the three sections, Jesus' messianic identity is central. So he goes right to the heart issue. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is a little bit puzzling. He says, it is as you say. Now, earlier in the trial before the Sanhedrin, sometime in the middle of Thursday night, Caiaphas says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said definitively and boldly and courageously and confidently, although surrounded by his enemies, abandoned by his friends, I am. And then he took Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and he brought them together, and he told them that he would be their judge. And then Caiaphas responded by tearing tearing his robe as a judicial act of condemnation. Now, Jesus is not denying that he is the Messiah. He says, it is as you say. It's an affirmation. It's not a denial. It's an affirmative response. But it would be something like this. Yes, I am, but not like you think. When you think of Messiah, you think of a militaristic king. When you think of Messiah, you think of a, of a, of a conquering messianic figure. When you think of Messiah, you think of someone that's going to try to throw off the yoke of Roman domination. 
When you think of Messiah, you think of someone who's really interested in terrain, who really wants to rule an earthly kingdom that is situated in a particular location. He said, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not that kind of Messiah. I didn't come to conquer land and armies. I came to conquer people's hearts. I came to to rule not an area, but I came to rule a redeemed people. And so he says, "It, it is as you say. Notice the response of the religious leaders. It's violent. It's harsh. It's instantaneous. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. It was like an explosion of accusations, a vehement, vile explosion of hatred. Everything they had felt about him, everything that they they believed badly about him found expression in those moments. And so they begin to accuse him harshly. And Pilate stunned and impressed that while the religious leaders are losing their composure, Jesus stands there completely composed but silent. You remember in the trial before the Sanhedrin, he, he didn't respond to any of the false accusations being made about him, any of the lies or the false witnesses. He, he made no rebuttal. He made no defense. It wasn't until Caiaphas said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Not until they finally asked him a question that was worthy of an answer did he respond. And, and now he remains absolutely silent, and Pilate is stunned. Pilate, the Roman governor, the man with the power of the sword, the man who has the right to set him free or the right to execute him, is he's shocked. Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. He's never seen anything like it. Normally people were begging for their lives. Normally normally people were were rebutting the accusations. They They were trying to call witnesses to their defense, but there he stood silent without responding to a single accusation. Mark's readers, when they would have heard this read, his Jewish Christian readers, they would have had resonating in their minds Isaiah chapter 53 And verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. In fact, if you've got a red-letter edition of the Bible... You won't find red letters again until Jesus hangs on the cross and cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He never speaks again in Mark's gospel. And it's Mark's gospel that we're studying. He's not pleading and begging for his life. He stands strong and proud and courageous for the glory of God. Well, I want you to notice with me, beginning in verse 6, in the center, in the heart of the passage, King Jesus rejected. King Jesus rejected. Pilate, or Mark introduces a, 
a part of the feast that we might not have been familiar with. It's a, it's a tradition that Pilate, that Pilate began as kind of a, a tip of the hat to the Passover. It's in verse 6. Now of the feast, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Now remember the Passover celebration commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt. How God had brought the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And Pilate knew that this was a very tumultuous season, messianically, for the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people sometimes would descend on Jerusalem and and it would be easy for things to get out of control. So in order to kind of tip his hat to them, to throw them a few breadcrumbs, he, he began a tradition that was reminiscent of what happened to the Exodus. And that is, he would set free for them one prisoner condemned to death. Any prisoner that they wanted. Notice that, that the crowd is going to initiate this. The crowd makes the request. And in verse 7, he introduces a man by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, what we might call a terrorist. And he was involved in murder. His name means son of the father. How ironic that a man whose name means son of the father is going to be standing by the son of the father and Pilate is going to ask the crowd, which son do you want released? Which son do you want set free? Now Pilate is thoroughly convinced they're going to ask for Jesus because he knows that they have brought him forward out of envy. Look with me in verse 10. For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. And so he's convinced that this is going to be his way to not not have to execute an innocent man. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that Jesus is not guilty of a crime deserving crucifixion. But he's kind of, he's between a rock and a hard place. If If he lets Jesus go and word reaches Rome that he set free a messianic pretender, someone that was was seeking to mount an insurrection against Roman power, well, he was going to be in, in serious trouble. But he wanted to set him free because he was anti-Semitic. He hated the Jewish people. They were a thorn in his flesh. He wouldn't live in Jerusalem. He had such disdain for them. He lived on the coast at Caesarea, and he would come and he would stay in the Praetorium, the Herodian palace during the festivals, so that he could look out and keep a close eye on this renegade group of misfits, this Jewish nation that he had such disdain for. And he would bring a large contingent of army and military with him, to, to keep everything under control. And, and so he, he, he thinks, I'm going to be able to slide through. I'm going to give him a choice, and the crowds are going to cry out for Jesus. And just the opposite happens. Notice he says in verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? But the chief priest in verse 11 stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them. Release son of the father. Release Barabbas for us. While while he's negotiating with the religious leaders, uh, a group of them are working their way through the crowd like like politicians. And they're persuading them and encouraging them to cry out for Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer. 
And so they cry out for him. And his response is, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Notice in verse 9, king of the Jews. Here in verse 12, king of the Jews. What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Uh, They shouted back, crucify him. Now, for the first time in the narrative, the idea of crucifixion comes up. Now, the, 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 the Jews didn't crucify people, they stoned people, but they weren't allowed to stone people during Roman domination. Rome removed from them the power of the sword. Well, people sometimes say, well, what about Stephen? Well, that's an act of mob violence. That was an act of murder. That was, a, that was a, an act of sheer, unadulterated, illegal murder, not a religious execution. Furthermore, they didn't want Jesus They don't want Jesus stoned because the crowds are going to say, you did to him what you've always do to the prophets. The prophets come and they speak and they they condemn the leadership and the leadership has them stoned. They wanted him crucified because Deuteronomy teaches, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. If he's crucified by the Romans and the Romans, they didn't create crucifixion, the, the Phoenicians did. They merely perfected it. They fine-tuned it with literally thousands of crucifixions. But if he's crucified, no one can say Jesus was a real prophet. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was a holy man of God. Because the religious leaders would say he was cursed of God. He was hung on a tree. He wasn't of God. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the Messiah. He's been cursed by God. And the evidence is he hung on a tree. And that's what Deuteronomy teaches. So they cry out, crucify him. And and Pilate, he's stunned. Why? What evil has he done? I know what Barabbas has done. He is an insurrectionist that's committed murder. But what has Jesus done? They shouted all the louder, all the more, all the heartier, crucify him. Every, Every bit of support is now being stripped away from Jesus. His disciples are in hiding, and up to this point in the gospel, the crowds usually supported him. They loved when he would tell a parable that would would embarrass or or condemn the religious leaders. They knew that the religious establishment, not each and every one, but as a general general tenor, were, were filled with arrogant, condescending men who looked down on the spirituality of others, and kept themselves at a distance from the common man. And the crowds, they loved hearing Jesus tell parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Levite passed him by and the priest passed the man by. But now the crowds are turned against him. And wishing to satisfy the crowds, Pilate released Barabbas. For them. How interesting that the man that committed insurrection and murder is set free, and the man that did nothing wrong dies for insurrection. It's stunning how far envy will take a person. Notice it was out of envy, their, their, their faces would have been red, the veins in their necks bulging. Their fists clenched. Crucify him! Crucify him! 
You know, envy's a, a rather acceptable sin in most churches. Oh, homosexuality, ah, ah, the question. Lesbianism, uh, no way. Premarital, extramarital, perverted sex, oh, you just can't have it. But envy, that's, maybe that's a little bit different. I can tell you it's certainly different in ministerial conferences. In ministerial conferences, we'll, we'll condemn the sins of our culture with a certain bravado, and then we will say, you know, such and such is a good church, but, you know, it's in that little adversative particle, just three-letter word, but, that envy shows itself. You know, he's a pretty good preacher, but I hear that he doesn't spend much time with his kids. It's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit shocking that when it it's all boils down to a sin, it's the sin of envy. Envy's got a, got a vile, despicable twin called jealousy, and sometimes we get the two confused. Uh, jealousy is a sin where one's hands are full. And one fights to keep what they believe is rightfully theirs. Envy, however, is a sin with empty hands. Envy is a sin that looks at what another has and longs for it, desires it, yearns for it, and believes that they should have it. Jesus bore all our sins in his body on the tree, but what drove the religious leaders to murder him was envy. And there he stood, surrounded by his enemy. We should never underestimate the destructive power of envy. God hates it as much as he hates homosexuality, lesbianism, racism. God wants us to be a kind, compassionate, generous people that rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Something else I find, you know, so, so interesting is, is how Jesus stood all alone. As he stood before the Roman procurator, the Roman governor, there was no one defending him. There was no one speaking on his behalf. There was, no, there was no one saying, listen, uh, this is way out of proportion. It's, it's way out of bounds. There he stood absolutely and completely and courageously and boldly and defiantly alone. It's good to take a, take a moment right now to think about 
college students and high school students and graduate students that are getting ready to go back to, to school. You're going to have to decide if you're willing to stand alone. You won't be absolutely alone because Jesus will stand with you. Jesus is the most magnificent and beautiful example of what it means to stand alone. It's drawing a line in the sand and saying, and saying, I'm going to be a light in a dark place. I'm not going to try and blend in. I'm not going to try and, and, uh, and stay under the, under the radar. I'm not going to be defiant. I'm not going to be brash. I'm not going to be condescending. But I am going to be a light. I'm going to be a light in the midst of darkness. But before we're too hard on our high school students, let's think about the Ford plant for just a moment. Think about the discussions that go on in the break room. Think about the doctor's office, where as a receptionist we may be in the midst of participating in a massive explosion of daily gossip. And what we sometimes will say is, well, I've just kind of not enter in. I'll just be, I'll just live by my life. I'll just let my life be my witness. Well, there's a lot of good people that don't gossip. There aren't a lot of good people that plant gospel seeds. In fact, there's no good people that plant gospel seeds that don't know Jesus. Jesus teaches us in these very moments what it means to stand alone for the glory of God. But something else we see, we see it as well is the difference between the power of Rome and the power of the kingdom. Roman power is militaristic. Kingdom power is a holy light. What a contrast between Pilate and Jesus. We could also read very quickly over the, over the phrase in verse 15, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. He doesn't go into detail about what it involved because everybody knew what it would involve. It would, it would be like there's no need going into detail for us about what a decapitation involves because we know what a decapitation is. In the first century, everybody knew what it was like for somebody to be scourged. They had heard it, seen it, or talked to somebody that had experienced it. It was a horrific, brutal form of punishment. When Jesus was scourged, they would have stripped him naked. They would have taken a poster or pillar and they would have bent him over and they would have tied his arms around that poster or pillar or they would have taken him and thrown him to, to the ground. And then either a highly skilled individual or a group of them would take a... Would take a a club of some uh, sorts, something like maybe a bat, and to it were leather straps, embedded in the straps, bone, metal, lead, all all kinds of very sharp uh, objects. And there as he bent over naked, either one or many of them would begin with great skill and intentionality, embedding that into his back and literally ripping off his flesh. The, 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 um, 
Ancient writers would say that it wasn't uncommon for someone's muscles to begin to be seen and for their internal organs to be visible. Jesus was a, he was a strong man. He was, he was a, he was very well endowed. To, to have experienced this and then be able to walk to Golgotha, that had been virtually unheard of. Many, many, many people went into shock and died right there on the floor while they're being scourged. But, but Jesus, he's strong. He, he's lived a, a life where he worked with his hands. He walked many a mile over the last three years throughout Galilee and many trips to Jerusalem. And so they scourge him and he turns him over to be crucified. Before we look at the last section, let me ask you this. Who or what is your Barabbas? Who or what is your Barabbas? That is, who or what in your life do you find it difficult to give over to Jesus so that he can be Lord of all? Maybe it's an ideal ministerial position or an ideal job or entry into a particular university. Maybe it's making it into a particular zip code. It's probably not even conscious, it's probably subconscious. All of us, from time to time, have rise to the surface our Barabbas. I will follow Jesus no matter what except. Maybe it's a child having a child, which is a very wonderful thing. Maybe it's a marriage partner. Maybe it's getting, it's getting married. No, what Jesus wants is to be Lord of all and for there not to be any Barabbas in our life. Well, let's look at the last section. Jesus is mocked. It's brief. It's straightforward. It's, it's rather difficult to imagine how horrific it was. They take him into the praetorium, into the palace, palace built by by Herod the Great. Uh, They gather together the Roman soldiers. They dress him up in purple, the color of royalty. They twist a a crown of thorns and and, uh, they push it down onto his head until until his brow is punctured. They begin to taunt him, Hail, King of the Jews! They begin to beat him with a stick. They spit on him. They're kneeling down and bowing before him, taunting him, mocking him, Hail, King of the Jews, until they get tired and bored. Then they take off the purple robe, giving back his own clothes. They prepare to lead him out to crucify him. King Jesus abused. Again, what a contrast between the power of Rome and the power of the gospel. All Rome can do is beat him and mock him and taunt him. They can't, they can't defeat him. In fact, he defeats them. 
King Jesus is, is mocked and abused. Well, we step back from the passage and, and we ask ourselves, what is this passage of Scripture saying to me? What is it that I should learn and what is Mark communicating to me? Uh, the first and foremost, it has to do with Jesus. He wants our attention squarely and directly focused on Jesus, the rejected king, the silent king, the condemned king. And when we look at what Jesus did for us, our hearts cry out, give me Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. Give me all of Jesus. Give me nothing but Jesus, the rejected king, the silent king, the condemned king. If he did that for me, give me him. He is my hope and my treasure and my joy and the crowning jewel of my life. Give me Jesus. That's the first thing I think this passage of Scripture is saying to us. The second thing is this, things aren't always what they appear to be. When we look at a situation and circumstance, all we can do is judge it by appearance, by, by, by looking at it from an earthly perspective. And from an earthly perspective, he's defeated. From an earthly perspective, he's abandoned. From an earthly perspective, he's lost. From an earthly perspective, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for him and embarrassing Embarrassing for God. And yet, from a heavenly perspective, Jesus Christ is, win, is, is winning the victory. Things aren't always what they seem to be. And then finally, the great Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson has a has a, a beautiful devotional on this passage of Jesus and Barabbas. Let me read you what Sinclair Ferguson wrote. Without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barnabas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words louder than the cries of the crowd for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He did not die for himself, he died for us. And then he asked this very probing question. Have you ever seen the mercy they were all blind to see? Have you ever seen the mercy they were all blind to see? Have you ever seen God's mercy and grace in Christ Jesus? Well, we're coming to a time of commitment. In a moment, we're all going to stand, and Craig's going to lead us in song, and we're going to sing together. It may be that today's the first day you've ever seen that, or maybe it's the first time you've ever begun to think about that, and you'd like to talk to somebody about it. We'd invite you to come forward, and what we're going to do is we're not going to coerce you or manipulate you in any way. In fact, we're not even saying that you, you're becoming a Christian by walking forward. All we're saying is this gives us an opportunity to, to talk with you and to sit down and open the Bible to you. It might also be that today you've been looking for a church home. You've decided, hey, this is where I'd like to plant myself, and we'd love to just walk you through the membership process privately and, and confidentially.
So I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer and then we, we will sing together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this unbelievable passage of Scripture that is filled with such grace. And we pray in these final moments that you would speak to us and our hearts would be open and receptive. In Jesus' name, amen.